So, good morning. My name's Tim. I'm a student here in St. Andrews, and it gives me great pleasure to be speaking to you all this morning. I wonder what your favourite story is. It might come in book form or as a film, maybe both, maybe a comic book even, or just a story that you've heard. And my favourite story is The Last of the Mohicans. I doubt many of you have read it. I certainly haven't. It's meant to be an awful read. But you might have... It's great, apparently. Yeah, I've got a picture version. I've looked at that. But but you might have seen the film. For those who haven't, it's Daniel Day-Lewis playing a, a Native American in the late 1700s. He kills the baddie, falls in love, wins the girl. It's an epic, absolute classic. And if you haven't seen it, the first take home from today is go and see Last of the Mohicans, even if my wife tries to discourage you after the service. <laughs> but why am I starting this morning by talking about my favourite story? Before we dive into today's passage, I want us to spend a few minutes thinking about the value of stories and their power to drive culture. Over the summer, I heard Neil Young, uh, one of the pastors at Causeway Coast Vineyard, <laughs> say this. The stories we hear and the stories we tell define the culture that we live in. The stories that we hear and the stories that we tell define the culture that we live in. And to my mind, this statement rings true. Just think back for a moment to when you were a child. I don't know about you, but the stories that I read or watched or heard about had a direct impact on the way I lived my life. I used to love watching the Tour de France, and I was absolutely captivated by the story of Lance Armstrong, a story which we now know to be, to be false, but at the time it completely <laughs> captivated me. And after we'd watched some of the cycling, I would go out onto the close and cycle round and round and round and round, and then try and work out how far I'd cycled and if I'd cycled as far as a cyclist, which of course I hadn't. But I was captivated by the story, and so I lived my life in such a way that I would try and become one of these cyclists. Or anyone remember Ray Mears? Don't see so much of him on the television now, but I used to love his outdoor show, used to show how to survive in the wild. I'd watch Bear Grylls, and then me and my friends would go out into the orchard, and we would spend the afternoon building dens, imagining that we were surviving just like Ray Mears had been surviving in the wild. As children, it's clear that stories dominate our imagination, and they drive how we live. But as adults, they don't affect us in quite the same way. We've somehow grown ourselves up. I don't watch The Last of the Mohicans and then spend my afternoons pretending to be a Native American in the 1700s or at least not all the time. Um, But really, stories continue to impact the way that we live. Narratives drive the culture that we live in. Consider climate change. We've been told, and rightly so, that the Earth is heating up in a way which is going to cause harm. Now, this story doesn't ring around my head every day. I don't think about it every second. And yet, it still drives the way that we all live every day. Our society values recycling and caring for the planet because of the story of climate change. There are countless other examples. Stories that we find in advertising tell us about the cars that we should have, the way we should think about how we look. They influence almost every area of our lives. Stories that we hear and stories that we tell influence and define the culture that we live in. But if this is true, then we need to question what are the narratives that we're listening to? How are they driving the ways we live our lives? Do we even notice? Now we're at church, and the Bible's a story. It's the true story of God and his people. And as we are the church, the people of God, 
I suggest that our culture must be defined first and foremost by the narrative of the Bible. The story of the Bible should be the story which drives the way we live. Its story should be the story that we hear and tell which defines the culture that we live in. And this morning we're going to continue on our journey through the book of Acts. And as we do so, I want us to keep on considering the power of a story to drive culture. The narrative of Acts should define our culture not only because it's the Bible, but because it's the start of the story which we, the church, get to continue today. The culture that the narrative of Acts sets is important because it's the culture of those who went before us in a story which we are continuing. We get to carry on in their culture, doing what they did and seeing God move in us and through us. So, without further ado, let's get ourselves into Acts. And I want to invite Hunter to come up. I'm uh, going to be talking for a while, so I thought we could get someone else to come and re- do the reading today. Um, it's going to appear on the screen, Acts 1, 12 to 26. Um, yeah, I use that answer. Thank you very much. Take it away. Oh, you have to flick the switch on it, yeah. Nice. Oh, hello. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah. So, Acts 1, 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olive, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Great. Thank you very much, Hunter. It's nice to have a different voice. Brilliantly read. Now, all that talk of stories earlier, this passage doesn't exactly have the makings of a classic and inspiring story. It's no Last of the Mohicans. We don't have amazing miracles, No heroic figure doing remarkable things in God's strength. Instead, we have people sat in a room praying, doing some administration, and quoting some weird passages from the Psalms. However, I think that we're going to find plenty which can define our culture 
and shape the way which we continue the church's story. And as we proceed, there are going to be three points in my talk today, all beginning with the letter W. Mm. Waiting, working, and writing. So first of all, waiting. This passage finds the disciples in a period of waiting. Two weeks ago, Jim started our series in Acts by relating how Jesus told the disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then last week, David Moffat from St. Mary's came and unpacked Jesus' ascension, which takes place just before this passage. Um, Both of those talks are available as podcasts, and if you haven't heard them, they're well worth your time. But in extremely brief summary, Jesus has ascended into heaven and has left his disciples with the command to wait for his Holy Spirit. So what do the disciples do? Exactly that. They go back to Jerusalem and gather in an upper room to wait for the Holy Spirit. They just wait. There's no mention of complaining or hesitation. They just get on with it. I don't know about you, but I'm really impatient. Laura and I went to go and see the new Johnny English film the other night, which is all right. It's not, it's not Last of the Mohicans. Um, <laughs> but at the, uh, at the end... Uh, Laura wanted to sit and wait and see if it was one of those extra scenes. You know, the sort of little comedy sketches or outtakes they put in. But I just couldn't sit still. I struggled to wait even for a few minutes. But I don't think that's just me. While I might be particularly impatient, I think that our culture is hardwiring us for impatience. From fast food and fast fashion to ever faster computers and phones, be it food or clothes or messages or even information... If we want it, we do not expect to wait for it. But this passage doesn't suggest any impatience on the part of the disciples, even though their waiting probably wasn't that easy. They don't really know how long they'll be waiting for. Jesus has told them they'll have to wait for a few days, but that's not really that specific. And that's not the only hindrance. As Jim pointed out two weeks ago, they were going back into Jerusalem, a city which was hostile to Jesus and his followers. And further, the passage says there were all told 120 of them. That means that the room was either quite big, or, and I think this is more likely, the room was cramped and a bit smelly. So despite the discomfort, the possible risk, and all the uncertainty, the believers were obedient and kept on waiting. Obedience is not the only characteristic of the believers' period of waiting. They were also committed to prayer, Verse 14 reads, they all join together constantly in prayer. A more literal translation and consequently more clunky could read something like this. They were all devoting themselves with one accord to prayer. They were devoting themselves with one accord to prayer. Jesus didn't command them to pray, and yet that's what they did, and with devotion and unity. For the first believers... Prayer seems to have been the natural activity of waiting. Throughout the book of Acts, prayer is going to come up again and again. It's mentioned 31 times in the 28 chapters of Acts. So it's pretty clear to see that it underpins everything that happens. It's so striking that before the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, before all of the miracles and wonders that we'll see throughout the rest of the book, the disciples are already in prayer. Prayer is central to the church's mission in Acts. So what about us? What are we waiting for, and how are we waiting? Are we living to expect instant results? Are we taking seriously the example of the disciples? I 
think that old maxim runs true, that good things come to those who wait. I've been getting a sense in the last few months, and I, I know it's not just me, that we're on the edge of something here in St. Andrews. There's something new that we're stepping into. God wants to do something new in us and through us. We're waiting for something. And while we're waiting, we must be praying. Just as prayer was central to the church's mission in Acts, it must be central to our mission too. Earlier this year, Jim laid out the vision for our current season here at Kingdom Vineyard. And one of the four Ps of Jim's vision was prayer. We're putting prayer first uh, in this season. And so uh, we had the 24-hour prayer event a couple of weeks ago, and we've got another one coming up. Let's join together in devotion with one accord as we put prayer at the top of our agenda while we wait to see what God is doing. So that's the first point this morning, waiting in obedience and prayer. And next, we move to working. The disciples were working while they were waiting. The bulk of today's passage has to do with the appointment of Matthias as a replacement for Judas. At the first glance of our 21st century eyes, it's a rather odd episode. From the graphic detail of Judas' death to Peter's odd quotes from the Psalms and the choosing of a disciple by lots, I, for one, was left scratching my head on first reading. So we're going to unpack this a bit at a time. The first thing to think about, I think, is that Judas was probably on the disciples' minds. They'd spent three years travelling as a group of 13, Jesus and 12 disciples. And when Judas, one of uh, the disciples, that close group of friends, betrayed Jesus, who was consequently crucified, the other disciples would doubtless need to process what on earth was going on. Particularly considering that Judas, Judas, depending on the tradition, either hanged himself or, as our passage relates, spilled his guts in a recently purchased field. Which, yeah, bizarre, but that's what it says. The disciples were probably contemplating the significance of their group of 12 and what should happen after Judas' betrayal and death. And with this in mind, it does not seem unlikely that the disciples might seek guidance in prayer and scripture to think about how they should consider Judas and what they should do next. And this is what seems to happen in the passage, but not quite in the way we would expect. So, yeah, Peter seems to base his decision that God wants them to replace Judas by reference to two odd verses from the Psalms that are going to appear on the screen. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Now, when I read those, I don't see Judas screaming off the page. Um, but I think we can start to trace what's going on. The two Psalms, 69 and Psalm 109, are both from Psalms in which the psalmist cries out to God against his enemies. Peter reads into these verses that Judas is an enemy. And he relates these verses to what has happened to Judas. So, now that Judas is dead, now that nobody dwells in his camp, now that his place is deserted, Peter reads, let another take his office, as saying that someone should replace the wicked one who has gone before. A couple of other things to consider in the passage. Why 12? 12 was a significant number for the Jews. There had been 12 tribes of Israel, 12 spies sent into the promised land, and Jesus had chosen 12 disciples. 12 was clearly significant. And then why lots? Why make a decision by pulling straws? Uh, it seems that that was actually quite a normal procedure at the time. 
much like we would toss a coin. The disciples had narrowed down the selection by their common sense and were now offering it over to God in prayer and letting him pick by the choosing of lots. So overall then, the picture which the appointment of Matthias paints is one of getting on with business during the waiting. The disciples are praying, and while they're waiting, they are lifting up their circumstances to God. Peter hears God speaking, and then they take action. It's not frantic action, but it's a measured decision. They pick out the candidates carefully. They need to have followed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry right through to the end. And then, when there are two candidates of an equal strength, they pray and decide by casting lots. They're faithfully attending to business while they wait. However, when I think about how I wait, it is not usually like the disciples above. When I'm waiting, I get busy and try to make something happen for myself. I think that once again, this tendency can be seen in the stories we hear around us. People who work hard succeed. You need to go out and make something of yourself like so-and-so did. Now, these stories might be true, and work does not stop while we're waiting, just as it didn't for the disciples. However, we must not strive for busyness. We must not overreach what God is doing while we are waiting. Obedience is key. We must be working like the believers while we're waiting. And now for writing. In the book of Acts, the believers, whether they knew it or not, were writing the story of the church. And the story continues. God is still moving. He's still using people like you and I and still seeking to build his kingdom in us and through us. We get to keep on writing the story which Acts began. And as I started my talk this morning, I began by talking about stories and the way which they set our culture. And here's the challenge. What stories are we going to allow to define our culture? As we work with God, as we keep on writing with him the story of the church, what stories will drive our culture? And what stories are we going to leave behind? As I've already said, the story of God and his people is a great place to start. We need to let the story of the first believers, the story that when we faithfully pray and wait, when we obediently work in the waiting, God will show up and do as he promised. We need to live within the narrative of the story of Acts. But because the story started in Acts hasn't yet finished, it continues, we can also look to the church throughout history for stories that can drive our culture. And as we do this, we find that stories like the one we see in Acts repeats itself again and again. And I want to tell a couple of stories that are just like the story in Acts just now. And the first of them is from the Hebrides in the middle of the last century. Um, two sisters, one aged 84, one aged 82, uh, one called Peggy, forgotten the name of the other one, and I wasn't able to find it, but Peggy was stone blind, had been faithfully praying for their parish because uh, there were no young people attending. Accounts differ for how long they were doing this for. Some people said years, um, but we don't really know, until one day one of them had a vision that the church was filled with young people. They called their pastor, and he came round, and they urged him and some other members of the church to start praying too. They did this for about a month and a half until the pastor and the elders of the church felt convicted and decided that something was indeed happening. They called for an evangelist, and when the evangelist arrived, such a powerful move of God's spirit had begun that people were just arriving at churches, unable to explain what had led them there, 
that they just needed to go. The evangelists had planned to visit for, for just, I think it was a matter of weeks, but ended up there for years. Thousands of people came to know Jesus. I think the parallels between this and the story in Acts are pretty clear. The sisters were faithful in prayer. They heard God speaking, and then they were obedient in the waiting. And then, after the waiting, God showed up. Another example, and this time from the vineyard movement, in the early days of the Anaheim Vineyard, the church planted by John Wimber, the founder of the movement of which we are a part, uh, John Wimber felt very strongly that God wanted to physically heal people. He felt that God did it in the Bible, and if he did it in the Bible, he wanted to do it today. So, at the end of each meeting, they would faithfully make time at the end of the service for prayer. But for six months, no one was healed. And as you can imagine, this praying and waiting must have felt excruciating and more than a little awkward. And yet they kept on praying. After six months, finally, God started to heal people. And here we are today. The parallels, once again, are pretty clear. Waiting and praying, hearing God speak, and then eventually, God does as he promises. There are other stories too. That of the 24-7 prayer movement, that of Rhys Howells, the Welsh intercessor, and that of countless others. These stories, if we let them sink in, permeate our lives, if they're the stories that we hear and tell, then our culture will shift to that of the early church in Acts. A church which waits and listens to God, which gets on with business faithfully, but is ready when he comes. Now, I'm going to make a couple of book recommendations. I'm a big reader. Um, I know not everybody is, but I encourage you. These books are really easy reads. They're proper page turners, so just give one a go. Um, if you want to know more, I've got them afterwards. So we've got Reese Howell's Intercessor. Now, I've not actually read this. I was actually given this last week by uh, Ian and Rebecca, but I already know it's a great read. I've heard lots about it. So there's that. Um, if you want to know more about the Hebridean revival, I'd recommend this. Duncan Campbell, a biography. This is the evangelist who went and ended up staying for years. Really, really lovely read and properly inspiring. The two old ladies are also really sassy, and they feature quite heavily throughout the, uh, <laughs> the account. So if you like sassy old ladies and God moving, this is great. Um, Red Moon Rising and Dirty Glory, these are written by a man called Pete Gregg, who heads up the 24-7 prayer movement internationally. He not only is a brilliant leader, but he's just a really creative guy. And so these books, while they faithfully account what's happened with 24-7 prayer around the world, are actually just inspiring on a creative level in terms of how he tends to describe things and the words he uses and stuff. So recommend them all. Um, brilliant reads. And also, just to say, there is a bookshelf or two in the Vineyard Centre, and you can borrow books there. And I know that this one, at least, there's at least one copy of this in the Vineyard Centre um, fit to be borrowed. Yeah, so I just wanted to recommend some reading as we think about stories. I want to put a small disclaimer at this point. What I'm calling us to is not only to listen to Christian stories. The world is full of stories of hope, goodness, and beauty, stories that point out the world's injustice, stories even which are just good fun. And these are, of course, worth our time, and in fact, should be allowed to shape our culture. These are stories which are for, whether they know it or not, what God is for, and in some way, once again, whether they know it or not, celebrate who God is. 
But what I am calling us to is to question which stories we are allowing to drive our agenda, to shape our identity, and to create our culture. Is the culture of our lives driven by stories of God's goodness and his kingdom, or by the passing fancies of a world that doesn't know him? So, God invites us to join him in writing the story of the church. And as we do this, we need to choose which stories we will let set our culture. And we need to choose the type of story that we want to leave behind. The story of Acts in today's passage, mirrored by stories throughout history, tells us that when we are faithful in waiting, when we are obedient and prayerful, when we keep on with business but don't overreach, God comes and does what he promises. And I hope that we can write a story like that too. We're coming towards ministry time now, and in a moment or two, uh, the band will start playing, and you'll be invited to come to the front to receive prayer for anything you might need. There's any place where you feel that God has been speaking to you, or even if you just want to know he's there, anything at all. And as Jim said earlier, members of home groups who we trust will come and pray with you. Before that, though, I think there are a couple of things that God might be saying specifically this morning. Um, and they actually, once again, the chain stuff plays right in. So I really think God is saying this to some of us this morning. I think there might be, for some of us, specific narratives or stories which you've heard that have been spoken over you, which are untrue but you can't seem to shake off. Maybe about your identity and self-worth. And I think that God might want to speak you over you his story in a fresh way. And if that's you, we'd love to pray for you. For others of us, I think that a culture of instant results and busyness leading to success has been the driving agenda in our lives. God's holding out for us something different and something better. I think he wants to set his story on our hearts afresh so that we can live by the culture of his kingdom. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard the story of Jesus before, but you're interested, you want to find out more, you want to know him. If that's you as well, then we invite you forward to come and we'd love to pray with you and chat with you. Uh, so the story of Acts in today's passage is one of obedient and prayerful waiting. So let's obediently and prayerfully wait on the Lord together now as we invite him to come and move amongst us. So please stand and I'll pray. Father God, we long to be a church where we see your spirit moving. We long to be a church that cries out for your kingdom to come and that sees it happen. Help us to obediently and prayerfully wait together. And God, for each of us, we long to have your narrative, the story of who you are and what you're doing in your creation written on our hearts so that every day we would live with you and for you. Would you come and break any chains that bind us? Amen.